We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Are you jogging along with the day-to-day stuff, not really noticing how time is flying past? Are you aware that something in your life isn't quite right, but push down the thoughts with your favourite distractions? If you'd answered yes to both questions, join the club. It seems to be the standard default setting for the human race. But what if you had a near-death experience? How would that change your outlook? If you'd met my witness today, Oliver Russell, a few years ago, he would have said he worked hard and played hard. He coped with his stressful job in the telecommunications industry with alcohol and in his younger years, party drugs too. However, when he had the good fortune to retire early at the age of 50, the stress lessened, but he didn't ease back on his drinking. When Oliver was one of the first in the UK to be infected by COVID, his vital organs closed down and the doctors told his sister to expect the worst and a police officer was about to be dispatched to his mother to inform her of what had happened. Fortunately, he's here to tell us what it is like to go to the edge and how it changed him. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, Oliver. Can you remember the first time you heard about COVID? Or I think in those days, we called it the coronavirus, didn't we? Yes. So I'd heard about the coronavirus on news reports about this virus in China and never thought, you know, looking at it, you saw people there in Wuhan getting infected and getting ill, but never thought this virus would come across into the UK and come into London and actually affect myself. I must admit, I thought, oh gosh, they're making a big song and dance about nothing yet again. Yes. Was that your response a bit as well? Very much so. And I thought, you know, here's a virus. We've heard about other viruses like Ebola and other things like that. And it's very much those are viruses which are happening in other countries, but never at home here in the UK. And it was quite a shock. You know, you did hear stories that this virus was spreading across the world. Going across first, I noticed in Europe, like all of us, it was in Italy. And then we saw further things of of the horror stories happening there. And I must admit, I had Italian clients at the time. And when I heard they were not allowed to leave their houses, I thought, how can anybody possibly do that? And then sort of a week later, it was happening here in Germany. And about two weeks later after that, it was happening in the UK that you weren't allowed to leave the house. So give me a picture of what your life was like before all of this. So I had recently retired, and I think that in itself was a a big life-changing event, actually stopping work and a a, a regime there going into work for 9 o'clock and and finishing at 5.30. When I retired, I had a lot more time on my hands. And when I was working, I would say I was very much a, a heavy drinker, but somehow the work pressure kept the drinking to a certain time, perhaps after work and stuff like that, but certainly very excessive. And 
I thought at the time very enjoyable. But when retirement occurred, I had a lot more time on my hands and the excess of drinking started to take over a little bit more where it would become a daily event and maybe certainly start earlier in the day. And that was a big change for me with hindsight for the worse. Was it a big loss of identity ending your job? I think it was a little bit of a a loss of identity and also having a routine. So work for me was a great escape from some of the pressures of life in some ways, even though it was pressurized itself. And I had some family issues, certainly around my mum getting older, having health problems around that and work was stressful, but also it was an escape from some of the big issues that were occurring in my life. And maybe I thought I was slightly denying and alcohol covered that in a way to make it less stressful. I can imagine your mother's getting older and frailer and she was living in Cardiff and you lived in London. I mean, that's a long way away if you need to go in an emergency. So I can understand that was stressful. Was work satisfying for you? I think at the end, the work wasn't satisfying because I thought the whole environment, the people that I was working with, some very good people, but it certainly wasn't a place of empathy. And it became very stressful, very much in the end. When I retired, it all came to a head, you know, the reasons why I decided to stop work. There were moments where I thought, am I avoiding certain things? And I was covering some of those issues up with alcohol, certainly. What sort of things were you covering up with alcohol exactly? I would tend to say denial that I had an elderly parent who was getting, I would say, more poorly, more vulnerable. And that was, you know, the big thing. And also in work where I'd helped a lot of people, but not really looking after myself in that. And some of those people, they sort of let me down in lots of ways. And some people were very two-faced and that did trigger upsets, certainly with me. Do you think they triggered childhood issues at all? I think there was a little bit of that, whereby certain people, I think they did bring up some childlike issues, some codependency maybe issues, and I found that very difficult to break away from. So March 2020, when you had COVID, we knew so little about it when you contracted it. I mean, what was the sort of the first sort of signs that you thought, oops, something is wrong? (laughs) Yes. So I'd been to the theatre in March and I came back and I just had this very strange feeling in my mouth and a very foreign sort of feeling just it didn't feel like flu it felt very very alien and I thought this is very strange I've never felt so strange and so weird contracting something normally with a cold you you knew what the symptoms were and it it started off with losing my taste and this metallic taste coming into my mouth it was it was pretty horrid at that time So what did you do? I just took it easy. I remained at home. I tried to sleep and this went on for 
a number of weeks. And there were periods in having the COVID that suddenly I would start to feel a little bit better. And then all of a sudden, boom, I would be struggling to breathe. And it was the breathing which really got worse over a period of weeks, whereby I, I just was short of breath. I also felt there was a, an infection, these waves coming through my lungs, which made me really struggle for breath. And I was contacting some friends who were doctors. They said, you must contact you know, your GP and go from there. That's where it kicked off, where I started contacting the health service, which was initially 111. They put me through to, I think, a nurse, and they did a, an emergency prescription. Now, I can't pronounce it. It was called the steroid tablet at the time. Someone collected it from the pharmacy, and I started taking that. What was it like? Because you live alone, I, I think I'm that, correct. That is correct. Time. Yes, absolutely. What's it like living alone, facing these sort of kind of fears? I was very fortunate. I had quite a good number of friends who were checking up on me, but living on your own, it felt quite frightening because you're very much aware that if anything sort of major happened to you, you would wonder who would know. At the time, you know, we were in the, you know, starting the lockdown and people would check up to see if I was all right. But it was the loneliness when you're very ill and very sick. I was, in the end, very frightened to actually go to sleep. That was the big thing for me because I was fearful that I would not wake up. I would go to sleep and maybe pass away in my sleep. And that created a huge anxiety compounded with the problem because I was a drinker and stopping drink, you know, because I was so ill, that increased the anxiety as well. So stopping drink made you doubly anxious? Absolutely, yes. It was, a, a to me, it was just a, a living hell, I would say. I felt that I really was going through the, the wars. And not knowing the outcome of COVID made it more frightening, where you would hear people, you know, on the news, of course, the, the death rate was very high and very sad. But when you're in it yourself, you do think the worst. And how much were you drinking on a daily basis? I would say when I stopped work and in that time, it would certainly be six pints a day of that sort of level. And so you started taking the tablets. Yes, absolutely. Did they help? They seemed to help a little bit, but I just felt these waves going through my lungs. It's funny, <laughs> you live with, you know your body in the nicest way, and I've lived with my body for over 50 years now, and I just felt that the whole inside was just sort of crumbling. And I thought, if you don't make decisions here to try and save your life, you might easily go, which has happened, unfortunately, to people. Because I, I know that I would find that incredibly difficult. I was brought up with that stuff and nonsense, you know, get on with it sort of kind of British education where if you hadn't lost a limb, you had to do sports. We were thrown in the pool in the summer, outdoor, unheated, whatever the temperature. I mean, later when I got further up the school, it had to be 60 degrees, which is blooming freezing. But when yes. I first started, you went in whatever. I yes. mean, so 
the idea that you would say, oh, you know, I'm crumbling inside and I ought to do something about it, I would find it very difficult to actually make that call. I actually felt the same. I thought, my God, there's a point here, you know, you're deciding your own worth. I didn't want to phone the emergency services. I didn't want to be a burden. And yes, to make that call, I I was suffering. And at what point do you say, hang on, this is just too much? Because, (laughs) you know, if it's too late, you wouldn't be, how can I say? You wouldn't know if it was too late. And that was the frightening thing, to make that call. Now, as we'll discover, you went into hospital on several occasions, but what happened on the first time you went into hospital? Okay, so the first time I phoned the emergency services, this was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and they came in full hazmat suits. I was sitting at the bottom of the stairs, and I opened the door, and my God, I thought it was something from uh, Space 1999, you know, had arrived on my front door. When I first went in, they did some checks, and they're only able to do basic checks in the nicest way. At that time, there wasn't an immediate COVID check. So what they did was they checked your vitals, your blood pressure, your oxygen. My oxygen was a little bit low. They undenied, and eventually I did go into hospital. They did a scan of my chest and they could see, yes, you've got a a major infection there. At that stage, still, they didn't think it was COVID or anything like that. And they gave me some medication, some antibiotics, and I was actually sent back home. So how long were you in hospital for that first time? I was there in hospital for about eight, nine hours, something like that. How did you feel? Because on one hand, if the doctors say you're okay and you're going home, it's sort of relief. Yes. But on the other hand, you think, are they taking me seriously? <laughs> Correct. And I was thinking to myself, my God, you know, here you are in a cubicle there and they're just giving you some tablets. You know, your body is totally collapsing. I thought, God, well, they know best. They're not going to put me into a ward if they think it's not serious. And so they discharged me, not knowing that I was actually COVID positive and that I was <laughs> allowed to go back home. So you went back home in a taxi, I assume? Yes, absolutely. Got back home, started to take the antibiotics and things like that. And, and things gradually again started to get worse. I was in a, a very poor state. I called the ambulance again, and they came to my home. And actually, I think I called the ambulance a couple of times. I think you just need rest and plenty of rest. This is the second time in hospital. Correct. We're still in March, or have we crossed over into April now, 2020? We've crossed into April. They took me back in again. I believe at that time they did some more x-rays, and they actually admitted me to a ward. And they noticed in their blood tests that things like, for example, my cholesterol was very high, certain markers were not very good. They allowed me to be in hospital for a very short time and they discharged me. How long is a short time? It was two days something like that. And I was very panicky in the the situation. I was suffering from COVID and possibly alcohol delirium, you know, the delirium and confusion where I was. 
Iowa is in a very poor state of affairs to the point where I think the combination of the infection of COVID and the alcohol caused delirium where I wanted to try and escape the ward. And I felt that everything, I, I was literally, I would say, dying. And I was discharged. But I discharged, I was so frightened and panicky, I didn't collect my medication. And I think the medication they had was things for cholesterol, statins, and also things just for my anxiety. But still, I had not been tested for COVID. Was it possible to test for COVID at this point? It was, but it would take something like eight hours for the response to come back. And that was the frightening thing. I was very, 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 very ill. I came home. In the end, over a number of weeks, I went downhill very rapidly. I had um, pains across my lungs, and I was just extremely, extremely poorly. I was being sick. I was you know, vomiting. And being on your own, it was a very frightening experience. Because normally you would have possibly a friend there advocating for you in hospital and saying, for goodness sake, you can't send this person home. You know, he lives alone. He's <laughs> delirious. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he is. For goodness sake, you're not sending him home. Absolutely. I feel indignant if I had been there, that's what I would have been saying. That's what your partner would have been saying if he'd been there. That's yes. what your friends would have been saying. But because of COVID, you were entirely alone, dispatched Correct. to a house where yes. you were alone. Were you able to do laundry and things like that? <laughs> no, no way. I knew that I had COVID and I wouldn't allow anyone near me because I didn't want them to get it. And the ward itself I was initially on was very frightening because there were no visitors. They weren't allowing visitors into the hospital. So it was an extremely lonely experience. I came back to the house and I thought, right, well, let's just give it time. And I did have a friend who is a nurse. He said, you know, these feelings you get, these waves coming through your lungs and everything, they will, you know, subside over time. But this went on and on for weeks. So how many weeks are we into it now? From the that time you came back to the hospital to this point, how many weeks have we had? We've had now four weeks of, you know, not being able to eat, barely able to drink, just really hanging on by a cotton thread, I would tend to say. You're probably in the same sheets you've been in for the last four weeks because you haven't got the energy to change your bedclothes. I mean, Absolutely. it's not nice, is it? It's not nice. And also, I'm a tiny person, but everything as you get poorly and as you get iller and iller, you know, everything becomes all a little bit confused. And of course, everything around you becomes untidy and, and more unkempt and stuff like that. Weeks later, I thought, my God, here I go. I'm going to phone the ambulance again. And that was the turning point. I actually got some energy to do it and actually be quite assertive and aggressive with the ambulance people coming in. I said, look, I've been in before. You're taking me in right now. I can feel that I'm coming to the end of my time. And I said, I've lived with this body for 50 years. I said, I know when it's, you know, in trouble. And then they decided to do a, some sort of COVID test. Finally, 
finally. What date are we in now? So now we, we are now the end of April. This has been two months of hell, really, hell hasn't it? Correct. Yes. So I started to get it in mid-March, and then the last visit to the hospital was, I would say, end of April, something like that, yes. So what happens this time you go into the hospital? Yes, so this time... I went into a cubicle and I thought, I, th- I can't cope with this anymore. I said to the doctor, I know what I've got. I think it's compounded with my health. I would say self-induced. I was well overweight at the time, well over two stone overweight. On top of that, drinking heavily, I was no way ready to go into battle with such a, a major virus. So they decided to do a COVID test. And they were taken aback. It took, I think, eight hours to get the COVID result back. And they said, yep, you are positive. We're going to admit me into the ward. And, of course, being a COVID ward, it was funny. Most people were in protective gear. Yes, okay. Like the consultants and the uh, doctors and nurses. But there was a bit of a blasé feeling around the whole COVID thing because it was in its early days. The cleaner, for example, coming in just had a little mask, which he sometimes used, sometimes didn't use. I mean, you have a consultant in full gear. So that was interesting in, in itself. But at that point, I was critically ill things started to really go downhill whereby they were putting in things like anticoagulant drugs which is to prevent the blood clotting i've read up now with hindsight they were giving me very strong cholesterol medication because my cholesterol went through the roof because of the virus itself they were putting me on fluids they were putting me on insulin as well um, because my pancreas was starting to fail. And I think the whole thing, if I hadn't had that and I had remained at home, I certainly would not have made it, in my opinion. They told my family, told my sister that I would not uh, make it. Uh, there's a good chance I would go into organ failure. They were going to notify my mother via the police that I passed away. This was all going on. I had to laugh the nurse because I was fairly compass mentors. And I said, you know, um, you know, what is going to be the outcome? Am, am I going to live? And she said, all we can say to you now is you are now in the right place for the moment. So it wasn't very reassuring, <laughs> which made me, I can laugh at it now, but it's maybe a bit of a nervous laugh. Were you able to sleep? No, that was the big thing. I was in a hospital there for many days. There were machines going on around me, you know, seeing lots of things happen around me, like the priest coming into the patient's opposite and there's a unique smell to a, a ward of, you know, human beings and people very poorly around you. And I wasn't able to sleep. So, you know, after seven days, I had no sleep at all. And I was frightened to sleep in any way in my mind, thinking I would not wake up after all of this. If I went to sleep, that would be it. It was anxiety and fear. Do you look back at your life and think about it, or are you too busy panicking? 
Oh gosh, that's a good question. I think at that time I was, I was panicking and anxious, but I, I thought, well, <laughs> I thought, my God, you know, I haven't lived the bad life. I haven't inflicted harm to others, I suppose. And I thought, well, there was a, a sort of acceptance. This is where I am now. With hindsight, I think I did think I wish I had looked after myself a little bit better, not to be in the situation that I found myself in. I suppose if I could at that time reverse the clock and knew something like this was coming, I think I, I would have certainly changed my lifestyle, certainly at an earlier stage. When did you begin to turn the corner? I think around day four in hospital. I think by them putting the, all these fluids in me and other things, um, once I got into hospital that third time, the care was actually, it was very good. And the nurse and the doctors, they were all doing the, what they could to get me through it. What I was very much aware of is when you go into hospital, you are, in the nicest way, a, a number. Because we're human and we're human beings, we think we're important and it's your life. But at the end of the day, they, of course, are treating people and lots of people. It's only for you to be aware of your own life and be able to change it. So you're beginning to feel better, but as we would say in English, you're not out of the woods by a long way yet now, are you? What happens next? So I think on, what was it, on day five or six, I was lying on my bed and again, having not slept, I had a massive seizure. And because the ward was cordoned off because it was a COVID ward, you had to have a, a swipe card to come into the ward. And there weren't actually necessary nurses there all the time. They would look like they'd be looking through a little window into the ward. The main nurse there, an older nurse, Bernice, I remember her name. She was very nice. She told me afterwards I had a massive seizure. And with that seizure, I fell out of the bed and banged my head and I stopped breathing. That bit I don't remember, of course, but I had stopped breathing and, and they came in and the nurse luckily saw me on the floor and started CPR. Is this the machines that they put on your chest? No, this was manual intervention by pumping the chest. I stopped breathing. And I was actually foaming at the mouth. She did uh, chest compressions and, and called the crash team. And after one round of CPR, I took a big gasp of breath and I came back into uh, to the living and into action. So what was the first thing you remember after this seizure? Ooh, after this seizure, the first thing I remember was um, sitting by the side of the, the bed and not being very... <laughs> not being very compliant with the nurses wanting to leave and they wanted to do a scan on my head to see if there was any damage to my brain. So they eventually, after a few attempts, because I was thinking I can't take any more and I wanted to leave, and this was I didn't realize until the day after that they had done CPR. Basically, they wanted to do a, a CT scan and fortunately everything was fine which was a, a huge relief. Was there any time in all of this where you thought, 
actually, I've had enough, or did you have a strong will to keep going? I had a very strong will to keep going. If somehow you get the resources within you, I certainly did to continue. Somehow they did come back and maybe some, that someone was looking down at me and, and gave me some energy to, you know, get back. And from that time onwards, I was in hospital for a number of days afterwards and eventually released. That whole experience was, how could I say, it was very much a moment where you do reflect back on, on life and look forward to what you can do and change, you know, for the better. Certainly my feelings to the world has, has certainly changed. Before we look to how you were going to move forward from that moment, what did you think looking back? I think I took for granted very much my health. And I thought I very much lived for today a little bit excessive, a little bit hedonistic, and, and a little bit, I would certainly say, self-destructive. There was a very much a feeling, here I was, 50 or 51, a feeling that I was still a young person. And, you know, looking at myself at that time, I, there was lots of things fitness wise. I was uh, no way in good shape. And also, I would say slightly mentally, that really did change after the, the whole incident big time. In what way weren't you mentally fit? I think there was a, a lack of acceptance around things that were happening around me. For example, a parent getting older, getting frailer and accepting that. And I was very much still, I think, a little bit in denial of that. And also, I think I had people around me which were, how can I say, who were not the, the best people to be around in some ways. And that mentally I found quite draining, but I never really tackled it. Yeah, those were the big things. Draining? Draining, yes. So I would tend to say people who were quite selfish. You know, I ignored their selfishness and their lack of empathy. I think that was maybe down to these characters which we all have in our lives could be down to maybe, you know, not wanting too much intimacy and all those type of things. You know, the penny really did start to drop when you are very vulnerable and under the weather, to put it mildly, these characters who some people you thought would be there were not there. So you think you had a bit of a shield around yourself to let people in because you might get hurt, but it also meant you didn't let them in for the companionship and also the support that one needs in bad times. Yes, I would say that. I think there was that type of thing in terms of perhaps recreating something maybe from childhood in terms of the relationships and the friendships that I had as an adult and very much seen that. There were some characters there which were certainly very, very draining but didn't have the guts to face that or remove contact from them. So what help did you get coming out of hospital? 
the help which I got, first of all, was around the alcohol. And I had a lovely lady give me phone support because we were in the COVID time about actually stopping alcohol. She worked through those issues with me over a period of a number of months. Coming out of hospital, when was it? In April 2020. From that time on, I did not go back to drink. And that was a big thing. I would imagine you had quite a bit of alcohol in your house. Did it tempt you at any point? No, I think the trauma of actually going through what I had gone through and knowing that if I had continued drinking, the damage it would do eventually to my body and mind would be just not worth it. I think the experience which I had really shook me up. I think the combination of COVID and excess alcohol left me, you know, when I came out of hospital, I looked a shell of what I was. I'd lost well over two stone and I looked very disheveled, which is not surprising as you can imagine, but I think mentally it really shook me up. And you've known people who did die of COVID as well. Yes, absolutely. You've had other close friends die recently of non-COVID related stuff, but in this period. Yes. How has that affected you? You know, I think the big thing, I had to, you know, change and I felt as a human, we're just very vulnerable and very finite. And I think that highlighted that whole experience to me. But also it gave me great energy. I I think, strangely enough, I think without the COVID, and I'm very blessed to be still here, I think without the COVID, I wouldn't have made the changes which I've done to improve things in life. Stopping the alcohol being the big one, and also just general lifestyle things, all for the better. So what do you do now that you didn't do before? Now I would say I appreciate just life itself, being able to have my health, being able to walk, being able to do the basic things. In the time that I came out of hospital, I'm doing more walking, being around people which uh, I enjoy more and do really like their company. And that has been the big change. And just appreciating not actually wanting so much things, but wanting and appreciating what you've got. And, and I think the big thing for me is, is health, both mentally and physically. And also a bit of acceptance that time moves on. And certainly you can't pause time. And, you know, my mum is getting older. These things do happen. You know, sadly, people close to us do pass away. It's just appreciating, you know, what I have right now, I think has been the biggest thing. And in a strange way, I believe it's brought you closer to your mother. It has, so the, which is a very positive thing. There is acceptance now. She is getting older, more vulnerable. She's 85 now, and about five years ago, she had a heart attack, and she recovered from that and had some stents in. You know, So it's acceptance and enjoying her company not getting so upset about things which has happened, you know, in the past and just accepting what you have and the moments I have with my mother.
And I'm sure she enjoys your company much more now you're not drunk all the time. No, absolutely. I tried not to be drunk. I, I think probably there was a little bit of childhood stuff there. You know, I tried not to be drunk in front of her. But yes, you're right. It's nice actually having the energy you face things. I think for me, drink made it, I didn't face things. And I think it would go away by drinking. And unfortunately, <laughs> drinking makes it a 10 times worse, especially <laughs> once you slowly move away from it or whatever. You think, my God, that's, things get piled up and there is avoidance, certainly with me, with drink. And you're doing more sport as well oh, now I'm, as well. I'd Tell me about sport. your sport. Oh, yes. So now I'm doing, uh, there's a little a league in Southwark, which we do the tennis league and I've always loved tennis but since working at the end I never played that much tennis and drinking now I'm part of a little league I'm playing tennis nearly every day and I do a bit of squash and that transformation of doing sport is just so uplifting exercise cycling all these things I know people always used to say to me oh sport you've got to do more sport lose weight and everything but once you get into the whole flow of doing more sport you mentally just feel so much better and life is not as bad as maybe it really really is you know and it's a great antidepressant I would say. And you've become involved with charities as well. Tell me about that. Yes. So I'm, I'm starting to do some work, engaging in the community here with hospice sort of work and also doing some charity work with the LGBT community. So these things I am starting to fill my time doing, plus the sport, whereby Maybe if it was a couple of years ago, it would be going for a drink on a regular basis, on a daily basis, early in the day. And now I'm doing these far more enjoyable things in my eyes. And, and uh, I would say loving the experience of life. It's amazing how much time drinking takes up, really, isn't it? When you think about it, you think, you know, up, down, and that would be it. But it takes yes. up a lot of time, doesn't it? it? It does take a lot of time. And, you know, unfortunately, we do have things here like the weather spoons, which do put up early, yes, in the morning. And that can tend people in, including myself. Yes, they do start at about, I think they open eight, nine o'clock in the morning. And that there Ooh. is. It, Oh, yes, it, it, there is a temptation uh, there in the old certainly days to go there and drink and they will be serving alcohol. Weatherspoons is a big chain of pubs. That's what they do. And you would recognize other people in a similar situation to you wanting to drink. And you notice the similar people in there with the similar sort of challenges. Well, certainly it would be quite a, you know, the DTs are not a pleasant experience. Alcohol and COVID is not the combination which I would like to go through again. Yes. <laughs> you have been to the edge. Yes. And you can report from the edge. What have you got to say to us? Well, what I would say is enjoy life now. Be around the people you want to be around and enjoy the simple things in life and enrich your soul very much. You know, life is a wonderful gift. 
The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of being a supporter of The Meaningful Life is you can get all sorts of bonus material, which we'll be talking about in a moment, and you can write in and have a letter discussed by me and my guests. This is a letter I have to discuss today. It's highly likely that I will have to go into hospital for a major heart bypass operation. Since I found out and told friends and colleagues they have all been full of reassurance. Everyone has either had a bypass or knows someone who's had one, and they're all tripping over themselves to tell me it will be fine. On one hand, I know that this is now a fairly routine procedure, but on the other, I'm reeling from the idea that I've crossed a threshold. It seems every part of my body has a specialist somewhere in the health service, and now it's my heart. It doesn't get more serious than that. I feel I'm being sucked into a huge system. And although I know they have my best interests at heart, I seem to have lost control of my life. I try and focus on now, enjoying the morning coffee and the birds singing out the window, as we're always told to do, but I can't stop this creeping realisation that it's all downhill from here, and the view does not look good. So, what were your thoughts when you read this, Oliver? Well, what I went through in the hospital... I just think, you know, you will go into hospital there and you will come out and life really is, is to be enjoyed and cherished. And then it's certainly, I would not say it's downhill. There's an opportunity there which you have been given very much like me to actually continue to enjoy life and enjoy your health, being in the presence in this world. And I think it's wonderful to be able to be here and enjoy the little things in life. And it is, once you're over the operation, it's something to really relish and appreciate what you really have. Once you come through that, it will be, I'm sure, a very positive thing. And what interested me was you talking about how you found from somewhere inside you a strength that you didn't know that you had. And I wonder if that's a strength that we all have inside us that we discover in adversity and that this correspondent will discover his strength. Yes, I I think there is an inner strength which we do have and it is actually latching on to that and that will make a huge difference and you will find somehow that sort of reserve to come through this. And it's amazing that we find that and we all have it. What I found in my experience, I relish more things, which I used to take for granted, that I relish more now on a day-to-day basis. And I was never aware how fortunate I really was. Now, one of the things I think is really important that we have to learn from you is that we have to advocate for ourselves, because if you hadn't actually have advocated for yourself as strongly as you did, then you wouldn't have got the support and the help that you needed at the right time. And that's difficult when you're in a big 
system and you feel like a number, how do you stop feeling like a number and how do you advocate for yourself? Well, I do remember, you know, you really got to stand up for yourself. And especially when you're in a health system, you know, you've got to ask the questions, ask the intimate sort of details and you know, all these sort of things. Certainly doctors, they come out with great words and everything like that. But you want to know what is actually happening to yourself. And you really got to push yourself forward if you can and say, you know, what you feel. And you've got to reach out and you know your own body and be honest and be determined, you know, if you're not sure of things. You know your own body. That's an important thing to say. So how... Can the view not be all downhill from here? Try and give us the other side, the view being uphill. Not, well, actually, uphill sounds like a struggle. I mean, are there things that you're going to do now that you haven't done before? It's funny. It felt like after coming out of hospital and, and redoing the things, like be it tennis, it felt like in some ways I went back to being a teenager, the things I used to enjoy then. And I enjoyed them then. And it's actually redoing those things and realizing those pleasures, even though they're very straightforward, are just really nice. Now, I'm going to be a little bit challenging. I'm getting the picture that you've been single most of your life. Am I guessing correctly? Yes, that is correct. Yes. And when you've been single for a long time, there's a tendency to sort of tell yourself, oh, I'm like my own company, I'm used to myself. And I think this sort of experience makes you think again about that. Am I entirely wrong or are you now interested in having a relationship and do you have the courage to go out and find one? Interesting. Okay, so I certainly am open to a relationship. It's funny when you're not looking as such, it's being at peace with yourself, I think allows the that door maybe to open and that I'm sure might happen. But I think the big thing is just to be at peace with yourself and just acceptance and not needing maybe validation from other people. That type of thing. I think solitude is a nice thing in some ways, but I think being in this different headspace probably opens the door to uh, meeting different and new people because you have a different take on life. So thank you for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful is recently helping people within the community and being compassionate. And actually, if you can help other people in a way, I think is a, a nice thing. And I did see a lot of very kind people in hospital helping other people. And uh, I think it goes a long way if you can do that or, you know, share your experiences and, and offer support. And that makes life very much meaningful. Pass it on. And has it changed your attitude to faith or anything else like that? Has it made you think about the afterlife or whatever, or religion, spirituality, whatever you might like to call it? Uh, yes, it has. I think it's enhanced it, uh, in fact. I think there is something which I cannot explain, but I do feel there is a spirit and there is a soul 
to people. And I think, yes, I think the experiences I have had has enhanced that. So this is the place where, for most people, our conversation ends. But if you'd like to find out what I've got out of this conversation and what Oliver has got out of this conversation and the three things he knows deep down to be true, you can find out how to become a supporter of this podcast. And here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.